is Mindy Wilson for Urgent Care, and I'm happy to welcome to my program today Jack Levine, founder of the Four Generations Institute. Jack, welcome. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Jack, you've you've spent your whole life in public service. Uh, Four Generations Institute was the sort of the uh, the the current generation. Tell us about how you started. What got you interested in public service, and sort of how did you end up where you are now? Well, I guess it's a sixty-seven year story, but let me start at the beginning. My my father was an activist who happened to be sixty. That's six zero years old when I was born. <clears throat> so I uh, grew up with the oldest dad on the block. And he was very involved in causes. He was a businessman, but also a very generous man with his money and his time in causes that would benefit people across a range of issues, uh, culminating in the civil rights struggles of the 1960s and 70s. So I guess you can say there is no advocacy DNA, but I kind of caught it from my dad. I used to read for him because he was not only an older man, but he was a blind man. And his blindness led me to a task of reading for him, mostly opinion columns from newspapers. So um, I recollect those days very, very vividly. I'm very, very attuned to the importance of working with and learning from elders, and I guess that was the start of my advocacy life. And uh, the rest, I guess we can say, uh, is progress in the right direction. So so did you follow in his footsteps and work in the civil rights movements? How did you get more focused on family and children? Well, the first thing was um, his interests were very spectral from worker rights to uh, causes that related to families especially families who had a special need, for example, a disability. And these were issues that came about before his blindness. He didn't turn blind until he was 52. So when I was growing up um, in a suburban beach town outside of New York, uh, there were a a spectrum of family needs around us, uh, who was different, now we call it developmentally challenged, Uh, perhaps somebody who had um, a special need for mental health services. So it seemed that my dad was kind of a one-stop shop for learning about and trying to assist others despite his own disability. So I was kind of immersed in the issue of what could we do when somebody has a challenge, and I watched him work his magic both financially and um, emotionally, and I, I just followed that, that path. I became a teacher uh, in the East Bronx for a couple of years, teaching English to Puerto Rican kids, uh, then went into the hotel business for four years. Uh, those were my wild years. Most of those records are expunged. Mm-hmm. And uh, then got a, a master's degree in child development where I met my sweetheart and now my wife of 40 years taught delinquent kids when I first moved to Florida, and then just made my way into the advocacy game. So I guess each of those is a five-year incremental to where I am today. And so so you were very involved for a number of years 
with the Children's Advocacy Group in Florida. Yes, my passion for children really was uh, rooted in um, the birth of my three nephews, one another, two miles. And uh, my brother, I'll say it politely, was not the most involved dad. So as a teenager, I became fascinated with my three young nephews, and I was always captivated by their ability to communicate with each other, even in their toddler and early childhood years. So I kind of planted that perception, and it grew later in graduate school when I studied um, fathers with their children as part of my um, master's program, and that's just stuck with me. So I guess there are some fascinations that take a while to blossom, but my advocacy for children's causes really was rooted in my caring for my own nephews. And then that sort of broadened because once you once you left Voices for Florida's Children, you got involved in in the you set up the Four Generations Institute. That's correct. It really was a natural passage because I realized in my mid fifties that while children are an essential part of our community and our families, children do not grow up alone. They do not grow up separate from other generations. So I started hearing voices, I I don't want to say that literally, but maybe spiritually, from my elders, my own dad, my maternal grandmother, very important influences in my life, and realized that my calling, or at least my new calling in midlife, was to be a generational advocate and to um, come up with strategies rather than a segregation of the generations by housing or other differences uh, to promote an integration of the generations, and that's my work to this day. So that's, I mean, historically, that's the way it was. You know, parents lived with kids, lived with their parents who lived with their parents. I mean, that was the historical model, for sure. Well, yeah, that, that's, that, that was the way. It wasn't perfect, by the way. Um, it was always uh, fraught with uh, individual family peril sometimes. But, yes, that was the way. It was both an emotional connection as well as an economic recessi- uh, necessity. It was especially true with our immigrant families, and I'm of an immigrant family, so we did have more than one generation around. But longevity has given us a fourth generation. You know, when I was growing up in the 1950s, there were children, parents, and grandparents. Basically, your grandparents were the oldest people you knew. And in the last 35 years, we've added another generation to our families. So it's now children, parents, grandparents, and who I call super elders. And what that really means is we need a plan because we've never planned for a fourth generation. We can celebrate longevity, but we need a plan to make sure that those who are over age 75, 85, 95 have the dignity and the care they need. And unfortunately, we've kind of forgot to make that plan. So now we're struggling to figure out the balancing of four generations. So what does that plan look like in your mind? Well, uh, in my mind, it's a, uh, it's a village plan, meaning that we don't have to live under the same roof but, roof, but we need to live proximate to each other and to have children and young adults and teenagers 
uh, know elders, get to know them, uh, learn from their wisdom, help in their care. And we have to have elders being willing to tell their story and assist young people in their development and growth because, again, unfortunately, we've segregated housing, and I think that's unnatural. I think it's also a negative um, outcome because when you don't know somebody, chances are you don't like them, you don't have a respect for them, and you may even start to fear them and even hate them. So what I feel is my vision is to have intergenerational villages. There's some movement in that direction. I'm very affiliated with a national group called Generations United. On the web, it's gu.org, and they're kind of my anchor in this work. We're going to have our international conference in mid-June in Portland, Oregon, and that's a convening of three or four days to bring together the different strategies from other nations. So what, what can we learn from them? What do you think are some of the things we need to learn from them? Well, it's about being uh, healthy and wise, and to some degree even wealthy, because um, the idea that we separate the generations I don't think is emotionally stable. I think it's, um, it creates this isolation that I think is the root of some of our social and maybe psychological problems. The other thing is with longevity comes a workforce need because there aren't that many 85, 95-year-olds who could be by themselves. So rather than the traditional congregate living of older people, you know, living in groups of 20, 40, 60, 80, 100 within the same space, I see more of a diverse housing pattern and more of an intergenerational conversation, including hiring people to take care of elders who don't have their own family proximate. I mean, it's a big puzzle. At this point, I envision a way that we do it that is a benefit for all, and that's why my slogan is bridging the generations for the mutual benefit of all. So I think that, you know, bringing people together and is a great thing. In my own family, my dad's 94. He's still active. He's still actually working full-time. Um, but that's the exception, not the norm. You know, a lot of people, they're, they're, they're working they're my age, they're working, and they're really not in a position to devote a, a significant amount of time to caring for somebody that's elderly. So how do you see that sort of rolling out? Well, you know, each family has its own dynamic, and each family has its own assets, and sometimes it's the asset of time, sometimes it's the asset of, of dollars, I think the greatest resource, however, is a caring concern for each other, and then we figure out the details. So, for example, when I see, uh, I live in Florida. I've been a Florida resident for 40 years, so we've got a lot of everybody's grands in Florida. <laughs> uh, folks move here and they stay. Uh, so what I've observed in my various travels and conversations and, and facilitating meetings, etc., is there is a hunger for relevance and a hunger for connection. Now, you know, you can't, you can't persuade people to like each other unless they at least get to meet each other, and that's probably the core of my vision here is uh, 
I'm counting that most people would enjoy interaction. You know, in, in 1630, a poet named John Donne, D-O-N-N-E, wrote this famous line that everybody's heard of, no man is an island. I mean, we can update it. He meant both genders, of course. So let's say it's no person is an island. We're supposed to be connected. So from the newborns, who obviously desperately need good caring because they couldn't survive without it, all the way through the late stages of life, even in the hospice world, we should be connected. So if we create the environment whereby we implement that dictum of we need to be connected, then the rest is really details. And whether it's extra time or extra dollars or extra caring commitment, I envision almost a utopian um, world in which we are bed-netted and we need to start at the community level. And when I see it happening, it's magical, and it becomes a fuel source for our happiness. Can you tell us some stories about how you've seen it happen, what the process was, and how it worked? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, There's a wonderful community in Florida called Sarasota. It's a county and a city. And there was a a housing place that was built after World War II because the returning veterans needed um, a place for their own parents while they went to school and went to work. And it's called the Pines of Sarasota. So that Pines of Sarasota was an elder community only for quite a while, and about 10 years ago, they diversified. They put in an in-house early childhood center for the workers at the Pines of Sarasota, and now more families of different age groups are congregating around that center. So what we have here is a multi-generational center with a special emphasis on elder care, but we have other age groups involved. And that is a wonderful, wonderful model. They're actually studying the model now with an institute. So the Pines of Sarasota is one example. Uh, Another that I'll give you is the whole um, creation of um, housing in which uh, we realize that you don't have to be, as I said before, under the same roof, but you can be proximate. So we see some urbanization in which we have both elder housing and young adult housing very proximate to each other. And some of that is being done around um, university communities. So we have examples of that in Charlottesville. I know Charlottesville got some very, very bad media last year with a horrible march by the extremists. But Charlottesville is also home for this model. So I would tell you that here and there and everywhere we're seeing this happening we just need to make it more accessible and more frequent. And so I'm a little confused, though. So how does the model work? Like, you you have people living in the same neighborhood, but you're a New Yorker. I mean, a New Yorker, you don't really know, you know your neighbors. So how does that sort of connectedness start happening? What's the What spark do you bring to it to make people start reaching out? How does that work? Well, it's, it's not perfect in all these um, environments in which you basically live vertically. Uh, that, that makes it more complicated because basically your only interaction is happenstance by elevator, and that usually doesn't work very well unless you have a, an association that feels like they want to socialize. So I find that the places where it seems to be working better with the inter, intergenerational village life 
is a little bit more um, either suburban or even semi-rural because you have some space. You know, in, in too many of our developments, you're exactly right. We not only don't know our neighbor, but, but if, if we have a need, it's almost like an isolated need. This idea of strangerhood being the norm is kind of bizarre to me. It's antithetical to our emotional needs. So I think we have to get to a place where we maybe do a little less technology in which we kind of huddle around our devices and do a little bit more touchology in which we create community gardens, um, uh, uh, international dinners, the idea that we can all um, uh, create a, a more village concept to our lives. And again, some people think this is a little bit wild and a little bit utopic, but um, I think that that's what we need, and I think that we can create that. There's a movement called Village to Village that is another um, grassroots movement that I'm very excited about, and we need to make progress. So if folks visit GU.org, Generations United website, there are avenues to learn about this and to create a positive conversation, and then we go forward. It's... Um, it's, uh, so, I not, not only think it's important, but I think it's essential. Oh, I, under, I understand and I agree with you that it's, it's you know, that connectedness is a very, is something that's really lacking. But my, my question would be for the people who are listening, what's the first step towards building connectedness if they live in these communities? Is there something they should be doing, you know? Do, do you are you looking for people just to say hello at the market? Are you does it? Yes, I happen to be a beekeeper and a uh, organic gardener in our own neighborhood, and uh, it's not for everybody. I agree, but there's something about the natural world that I think brings us together, whether it be, you know, in our own gardens, a community garden, or a park area. So, I mean, I think we need to kind of, in a way, come back to basics. I mean, we have a lot of young children who, whose entire uh, portfolio of vegetable eating is French fries. And I think we have to get to a point in which, you know, the growing of vegetables becomes an intergenerational lesson and it, frankly, can turn into be both delicious and nutritious for children. I give you that as a kind of almost comical example is because when you grow a garden together, you not only are toiling and you're learning about nature, but there's a great benefit, which is this great dinner that awaits you. So I almost take that as a metaphor for what we need to do is kind of come back to basics. I'll give you one more example. Uh, our watching other people do things, we've got a lot of guys, and I'll tell on my gender for a moment, who have no problem watching four or five football games on a weekend but never throw a ball to a single child. So this idea that we become a nation of spectators watching other people do things isn't bad for our mental health and physical health. It's really bad for our children. So, you know, I can go on and on about my observations because, again, being the child of a blind man, I I've saw I've for two people all my younger years. But I think we need to turn some of this around because I'm not sure we're going in the right direction with too much technology and too much separation. Yeah, I understand that. But but again, let's take it back. There are probably some very small things, very small changes in people's lives that they can do to start the step of building 
connectedness in their communities. And do you have any thoughts about what those small changes might be, what those first steps might be? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a lovely question because it has a lot of answers. I mean, how dare we not know our neighbor? I'm not saying you have to fall in love with your neighbor, but just to have some kind of exchange in our own living spaces. I mean, we, we should so, know who's around. So going uh, and introducing yourself to your neighbor would be yes, a, a especially good if, yeah. especially if Yes, exactly. Especially if somebody is just moving in. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with welcoming them. There used to be a whole program called Welcome Wagon. That doesn't really exist anymore. And, you know, I'm taking that as an example of something I remember as a child is when somebody moved into the neighborhood, you, you, you said hello. You actually did an exchange of a hot dish. You actually said, welcome, don't be a stranger. I mean, another example is we have people paying $50 a month going to a gym to sweat with 100 other people who are strangers. Why don't they knock on the door of a neighbor who can't afford a gardener and rake their leaves and teach our teenagers to help maintenance of the garden. I mean, it's, it's good exercise and it's good neighborliness. In some ways, we have over-commercialized basic activities. Uh, and, you know, I, again, I, I, I believe like the next person that there's a need for privacy, but in some ways we need to be examples to our children, and I'm not sure that's happening as largely and widely as it's possible. So, so, you know, maybe doing, reaching out to your neighbor, maybe somebody you know can't do for themselves anymore, offering to do some of the physical tasks that they're no longer capable of doing, um, you know, bringing your kids around, showing them how, uh, you know, showing them, making them involved in these kind of caring gestures would be a good way to get started. Is that what you're saying? Yes. That is what I'm saying, and you're saying it very well. So another example is, you know, most elders I know have photographs all around their home, in albums, on the wall, on the piano, but nobody is telling the story of who's in those photographs. So I say, you know, bring a couple of kids around and, and do an interview, a, a life, life story interview of who are those people. The young person learns about history. Actually, you can even scan those photographs for the elder, write captions, and make little family albums to send to their relatives. I mean, there are so many practical ways of using technology for the good. So we're going to start promoting. Actually, we're going to launch this, this coming June in, in Tallahassee, where I live, is an intergenerational photo album project, and that's a way of learning about each other and preserving life history. Because, you know, in the event that a storm comes or a fire comes and those photographs are destroyed, that's a family history that's destroyed, and that's very sad. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people with the fires that have gone around in the country and the floods that we've experienced, there's been a lot of devastation, and a lot of people have lost their family histories. So creating an opportunity where this information is uh, available, not just to them, but shared, it sounds like a wonderful project for people to get to know other people. 
Yeah, I, um, I'm kind of um, getting the positive chills of that being really a standard. You know, we can do it in our religious settings. We can do it in churches, synagogues, and mosques, have them learn each other and learn each other's histories. I mean, we're all from somewhere. We all have a story to tell. Why not tell it and preserve it at the same time? It sounds like a very worthy endeavor. I'm very affiliated with a magazine called Grand Magazine. It's grandmagazine.com for... It's for grandparents and those who love them. And um, we're going to uh, translate this uh, photo um, family history project to Grand Magazine in a summer edition. So uh, I can offer free subscriptions to Grand Magazine to any of your listeners. Uh, and let me give my um, email address because I love to hear from people, okay? It's my personal email. It's Jack, J-A-C-K at four, that's number four, gen, G-E-N, dot org, O-R-G, jack at four, gen, dot org, and I can put some of these resources into a reply email. And, and, you know, again, you know, a lot of people, there are a lot of people that are working, you know, and have child care issues and, uh, and uh, have fam and you know cooking for their family and and there are a lot of elder people who may may not be able to run around the way they used to be but may be able to help out you know with helping with their kids homework or you know helping prepare a meal or doing something that could uh, make a working person's life a little easier and bring connectedness with that elderly person and their own children. So um, there are a lot of opportunities to Yes, you, you, you're saying it so well. Um, you know, it creates a win-win-win-win strategy, and I say four wins because it's a win for all four generations. It's great for the kids to have mentors. It's great for the parents to have some assistance. It's great for the grandparents to see their futures uh, in legacy. And the elders, the over 75-year-olds, absolutely love the presence of other people. They don't want to be lonely. They don't want to be by themselves. So, I mean, nobody loses. Everybody wins. We just get got to get on the track of doing more of this so that it becomes part of our culture. And and then and then the the thing is that you provide the resources, or you can help provide the resources, maybe to get some of these initiatives started, so that if people were interested in doing something but weren't quite sure how to go about it, would your organization be able to help them get started in doing some of these things? Yes. Absolutely. I'm kind of an idea guy. And by the way, you're talking to my organization. So don't think about Four Generations Institute as any kind of, you know, large structure with a lot of people. I have an amazing and growing network. The lone voice in this by design because I like to be free to spontaneously do this kind of interview. I do eight or ten presentations a month somewhere, mostly in Florida. So I mean, I don't want this to sound bigger than it is, but my national affiliation with Generations United is one of my favorite um, avenues for for these resources. So that that's the website to visit is gu.org. 
Right, and people, if they, they can either contact you or contact this GU.org, Generations United, and maybe get a little push in the right direction. The ability to sort of explore some of the opportunities that are available, a way to bring people together. And, and the other thing that's nice about it is it doesn't have to be expensive. You know, somebody who is looking for connectedness, an older person who's looking for connectedness, a child who's looking for connectedness because they're at home and their parents are working, um, it, it creates an opportunity where, to bring the parties together and and nobody's looking for nobody's looking for money. Everybody's just looking for a way to be involved with other people. So I, well, I, well, you're you're right. Although of course there are some earnings to be accrued in caregiving, and, and that that's necessary for for people's um, maintenance of, of lifestyle. So I don't want to say this is all free. But there's a combination of the resource of time. By the way, I don't use the term volunteerism anymore. I found it has been diluted and misunderstood. I call that time philanthropy. It's a gift of people's time and treasure of life's history for each other. So I kind of have changed the language, and time philanthropy elevates it, gives people a better attitude about the gift of their time for others. So there are a lot of opportunities for people to get involved in uh, and and build and involved in community building. There's a lot of ways they can just make a simple start. Is that is that what you're saying? And then by one step leads to another. Is that correct? Yes, that that is correct. To each to each of his or her own. It's not for everybody, but everybody can benefit if they get into some type of intergenerational connecting. Well, Jack, again, if you want to uh, provide your information so people can learn more about Four Generations Institute or, uh, uh, or becoming an advocate for this kind of, this kind of solution to the uh, problem of the generations not connecting with each other, how would they reach out to you and your, the other organizations you're involved with? Yes. Well, best is a uh, direct email to me, um, Jack, J-A-C-K, at four. That's number four, gen, G-E-N dot org. I just need people's names and contact information. I do a once or twice a month message that people are responding to. It's also visiting gu.org. And also Grand Magazine, all spelled out, grandmagazine.com, for realizing that there is a population of grandparents very, very involved in their families' lives. And it's always a pleasure to speak about this and to learn from my interviewers as well. I appreciate that. Well, Jack, it's been a real pleasure meeting you and having you on our show. This is Minda Wilson for Urgent Care. We'll be right back. It's your health. Stay on top of your own health and medical conditions with Medivisor. Medivisor is free, private, and personalized information about your specific medical condition. It's literally as simple as signing up and answering some simple questions. 
Medivisor then searches thousands of research papers, clinical trials, guidelines, and even warnings to summarize a totally personalized update regarding your health. Medivisor.com. Medivisor. M-E-D-I-V-I-Z-O-R. The first step towards helping someone with a hearing loss is to help them overcome denial. An important step is to stop enabling the hard-of-hearing person. This means stopping their ears for them, repeating what others are saying or what is spoken on television more loudly for them. The longer someone with hearing loss is able to depend on another person for communication, the longer it can take them to come out of denial and seek medical help. Seniors in particular tend to passively accept their hearing loss as a natural part of aging. Be supportive and offer to help them find simple, affordable, and yes, even cool solutions and lots of great information from Clear Sounds. Visit www.clearsounds.com to learn more. Use coupon code RADIO at checkout and we'll take 20% off your order. And every order is only $3.95 to ship. That's clearsounds.com. C-L-E-A-R-S-O-U-N-D-S dot com. <laughs> 